It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. My name is Daniil Hartman, and I'm the president of the Shalom Hartman Institute. Today is Thursday, April 22nd, 2021, and this is For Heaven's Sake, a podcast from the Hartman Institute's I Engage project. Our theme for today is entitled Back to the Iran Deal. What have we learned as a community since 2015? In each edition of For Heaven's Sake, Yossi Klein Halevi, Senior Research Fellow at the Institute here in Jerusalem, and myself will be discussing a current issue central to Israel and the Jewish world. And then Ilana Steinhain, Director of the Hartman Faculty in North America, will explore with us how classical Jewish sources can enrich our understanding of the issue. At the Hartman Institute, we approach the Israel conversation as we do all our conversations, from a perspective of Jewish values, seeking broad and deep engagement. Our aim is to encourage a serious and respectful conversation on Israel across political lines, promoting understanding and strengthening Jewish peoplehood. Let's begin. In 2015, the Obama administration signed the Iran nuclear deal. The debate around the deal was one of the most acrimonious in the recent history of the American Jewish community. AIPAC and other leading Jewish organizations passionately supported the Israeli government's argument that the deal would likely lead to a nuclear Iran and pose an almost existential threat to Israel, while groups like J Street passionately supported the deal. Other parts of the Jewish community maintained an uneasy neutrality. What was perhaps most disturbing about the debate was the way neither side seemed to be listening to the concerns of the other, the way each side tended to demonize the other. Supporters of the deal echoed Obama's highly problematic formulation of the deal's opponents as warmongers, recalling the 1930s when American Jews were accused of trying to drag America into a war against Germany. Opponents of the deal questioned the good faith and commitment to Israel's security of both Obama and the deal's Jewish supporters, accusing them of preferring loyalty, for example, to Obama to genuine concern for Israel's safety. Since then, much has changed, both in America and in the Middle East. The Trump administration suspended the deal and reinstituted massive sanctions against the Iranian regime. And now the Biden administration, convinced that the Trump approach has failed to stop the Iranian nuclear program, seems intent on returning to the deal. How will the conflicting parts of the Jewish community react this time? Not only towards the deal, but more importantly, towards each other. Have we learned anything since the bitter debates of 2015 about managing our inner or intra-communal debates with greater civility and mutual respect? Or has our ability to model a civil debate become even more difficult given the general decline of political discourse? And is it possible to argue civilly when each side feels the stakes are so high. Yossi, it's nice to be with you. And as always, you know, uh, this is uh, not a simple one. 
you have, let's call them rather strong opinions on the deal. While our focus today is not on whether we think the deal was bad or the new deal is better or what the deal should be on that level. Um, that's not our focus, but let's, let's schmooze a little bit and, and um, let's spend a few minutes on the deal itself. Now that it appears to be on the verge of being renewed, you've written and uh, spoken vehemently against it. What are your thoughts today? Not at all simple as you put it, Daniil. I am deeply concerned that the Biden administration is about to make an historic mistake that's going to uh, seriously jeopardize uh, Israeli security. Uh, I listened to the argument uh, made by the Democrats uh, in support of the deal, and they feel vindicated. Uh, they feel that uh, the Trump administration's pressure, including uh, severe sanctions, hasn't delivered the goods, that Iran is proceeding apace to, to nuclear weapon. And my response is that it's so obvious that Iran was waiting and hoping, frankly, that the Democrats would come back to power and renegotiate this deal, which is exactly what's happening. So Iran is upping the pressure in order to put pressure on the administration to return to the deal. So I, I am, you know, more than, 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 I can analyze this with you, right? But it's much more at this moment, how I feel than what I think. Because what I'm feeling, and I think this is more relevant to our conversation than what I think, what I feel is an impending sense of betrayal. I feel this tremendous anger toward the Biden administration and its Jewish supporters on the deal. And most of all, I feel this growing sense of anxiety. And I feel that, this, that the renewal of the deal is going to lead us in one of two places, either a nuclear Iran or an Israeli war to stop it. That's, that's what I feel. And so what do I do with that, Daniil? <laughs> that's, a, that's a great place to start now. Now, by saying what you feel, you insulate yourself a little bit. If it's what you think, we can have a debate. <laughs> but how do I debate what you feel? Um, but, uh, but, I, I, but at the same time, part of what we want to talk about are what are our feelings, because how do we live with these very complicated feelings? And you used two very strong terms. One was betrayal, and the other one was anxiety. And before I run a sponsor, I want to tell you how I feel. See, because I don't, I, 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 I never knew what to think about this issue. A friend of mine who's very high up in Israel's negotiating team very often used to say that anybody who knows anything about Iran is not talking and those who are talking don't know. And I always felt that, you know, I know, being a rabbi, I, you know, obviously there's so many things that I know. I never felt that I was a big expert in centrifuges. And like I, I, it was always, a, but as an Israeli, I was always concerned. A nuclear Iran is, it's the one thing that the Israeli power doesn't have a solution for. 
we've we've moved to a place in Israel where there's such a sense of security and confidence. I remember as a child growing up here in Israel before Yom Kippur War, the 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 arrogance of post sixty seven, but then realizing how frail we were in six in in seventy three, and then slowly moving over time to Israel only fighting asymmetrical wars. Um, that it's unbelievable the the balance of power and the the imbalance of power between us and all of our neighbors. But you'll see, there's something else that I feel. Um, if I didn't feel beforehand that I was certain, it's at least, you presented this, it's at least plausible to question whether sanctions were working also. I'm not here, to, I don't, I'm not gonna take a position on this myself. I know how nervous I am and I know I would, I would prefer to err on a side that gives me better chances, but the thing that we've learned, and we saw this, the same thing with Islamic terror, uh, with Al-Qaeda and Iraq, there are certain societies in which economic sanctions don't seem to work the way we think they work. There is an assumption that very often um, that you're part of a Western universe, and since this sanction would bother me, it's gonna bother you. And it just doesn't seem to work that way. And I, it, it's at least plausible to question whether the timeline of, of an of Iranian nuclear bomb and sanctions were at the same pace. And the only thing that I'd ask you, since we're talking what we feel, and this is really important, since it's not certain, since there's at least room for a doubt. Now, of course I know that Iran doesn't want the sanctions, but why should they? But I'm not certain that Trump brought us further away from a nuclear Iran than beforehand. I'm not sure. And, and you yourself recognize that. So I wonder, and in light of that, I want to question a certain term because betrayal is a tough term, Yos. You know, once you say betrayal, that's the end, Yossi. And isn't the beginning of rethinking a relationship, isn't it about recognizing that maybe if the question is a little more complicated, that even though you it's so-called hiding behind your feelings, maybe you should feel something different because <laughs> you can't say it's just my feeling. It doesn't, doesn't a little doubt maybe say, maybe it's, maybe, maybe it's not betrayal. Maybe you disagree, but it's at least plausible, isn't it, Yus? You know, you're raising an interesting question, but I think there's actually an even deeper argument that you can make here. And that is, even if you're certain that your position is right, and I'm as close to being certain on this as I am on anything. I, I have lots of doubts about most of our policies. I'm, I'm very ambivalent. I've turned ambivalence into a public career in some way. <laughs> That's know? why everybody loves you. <laughs> but I'm not ambivalent about this, Daniil. And yes, I, I readily acknowledge this is where my second generation Holocaust background kicks in. This is my bottom line never again moment. And it, and it presses all those buttons. You're making an assumption 
that of course you care about Israel's security, but how are you so, being second generation doesn't lead you automatically to a lie. It leads you to be frightened of Iran. It doesn't lead you to certainty about one position over the other. So in this particular instance, I've done my homework. I've really researched this. I've, I've been paying attention to this issue since the early 2000s. I, I started writing about this uh, 2006, 2007. And nothing that I've seen from when I began immersing in this uh, has led me to fundamentally question those assumptions, unlike almost every other political commitment that I've had over the years. This one has remained constant. But where I would challenge myself is I feel as close to being certain on this one as I do on anything. Still, even with that, you have no right to feel betrayed by your fellow Jews who take a different position. And you certainly have no right to question their good intentions, their love for Israel, their concern. And that's the pitfall of, of this particular debate, certainly for my camp on this issue. But that extends to other camps as well. Uh, look, I'll give you an example. And this is, this is something that has really, um, in some way, forced me to emotionally rebalance on this. The last four years of uh, the Trump administration, Israel's unequivocal embrace of a man who most American Jews regarded as something close to an existential threat to their America to the America that allowed, that allowed them as individuals and as a Jewish community to thrive. The greatest internal threat facing America probably since the Civil War. And yet we in Israel completely ignored their existential fears for which they were completely certain, right? There was, I encountered no ambivalence over the last four years from American Jewish liberals on Trump. We took the exact opposite position and we didn't listen to them. We weren't listening to their anxieties. I have friends, American friends, who came very close to cutting off personal relations with me, even though I was not a public Trump supporter, but they knew that I had a certain amount of gratitude to Trump. I didn't feel that same sense of visceral rage that they felt. And so we weren't on the same team. I was betraying their existential fears. That really helped put my own existential fears and my own anger toward American Jews in a wider context. But then, yes. I'm wondering, you know, because what the next question is, what have we learned anything and how do we need to relate differently? Um, one of the things we need to learn, and especially in light of what you just said, is that some of the language we use just can't be used anymore. But you're still using the word betrayal. That you, was my emo I was I was trying to know my you. emotional life. <laughs> Emotionally, yes. When I but maybe. But yes. maybe I, I, I'm with you. I hear you. I, I think that part of what we need to do, because saying emotional is not enough. You know, there was a famous Archie Bunker where uh, um, 
he received a present for his birthday and he wasn't that happy about it. And his son-in-law said, um, you know, it's the thought which counts. And Archie Bunker says, you know, well, couldn't you have thought of something different? <laughs> so you know, saying it's the feeling, I'm going to like, shouldn't you feel something different? Part of it is we, we need to train ourselves to feel differently. Now, if, if we take, let's take your conceptual framework, which you presented, and that is a recognition that Jewish communities living in very different environments are going to feel things differently. They're going to feel things differently and they're going to see things differently. But that means part of what we do in our relationships with people is we share with them how I feel, but I don't assume that that's what they're doing because I feel something. It doesn't mean that they're betraying. You know, this is 101 in, in couples therapy. You know, okay, you felt that, but once you understand that that's not what the other one was doing, then you, you, you change the way you feel. You don't stay with the feeling of betrayal. And so um, I, I, I would like to recommend, and, I, and then I wanna give you a chance to respond to it, that we also have to change the way we talk. Because if we go back to that language, no matter what you say, at the end, there's no way forward. What I appreciate, Daniel, about what this experiment is, what you and I are, are doing here, is we're trying to map out the inner world of the Jewish people and offer some way forward. Now, it's very important for me to define both the, the useful emotions and the problematic emotions for the sake of this experiment. And I'm deliberately bringing out my um, unproductive emotions, which are there. And we all have those emotions. And what I saw happening to myself four years ago, five years ago, with the debate over the Iran deal was that more and more those destructive emotions were defining the way I was speaking publicly about this. And uh, I'm, I'm out there on this issue. Uh, I have a public position on it. I, I'm writing, I'm lecturing. And I need some help. I need to figure out how to speak differently this time than I did the last time. And so when, when I put that on the table, I need us to do exactly what we're doing, which is dissect it. And, and that's why I, was, I pushed back when you were saying, maybe there's room for doubt. My, and, and, and my response is, let's assume that there is no doubt here, um, subjectively speaking. I don't really doubt that that's the conclusion, where this is going. I really don't. But that's still not good enough. I still don't have the right to betrayal in the same way that my American Jewish friends maybe didn't have the right to feel betrayed by me as an Israeli if I didn't take quite the same position that they did. When we talk about the future, um, one of the issues is, uh, what do we do differently? I think one of the things that was very hard for American Jews was not that they necessarily had a different 
set of facts than you, Yossi, do. Here, there's one fact that Yossi has in Israel, and there's another fact that somebody has in uh, New York or Washington or San Francisco. So different facts get to different places. I think part of the story is that the discourse around this deal had nothing to do with the deal at the end. It had to do with claims of loyalty. And uh, the assumption by definition was that if you love Israel, you're, even if you disagree, you owe me loyalty to the opinion that I'm presenting. And I think the personification of that and the, the worst expression of that was when uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu went to Congress. And he almost forced American Jews to back a position, which in many ways, there could have been a much more serious debate in America. You know, whether the deal is a good deal or not, is not doesn't line along Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative. There's something stupid in the Jewish world or in any political world where your certain political assumptions um, then determine which facts you uh, accept. Like a parallel in Israel would be, okay, if I'm, if I'm left-wing, then I think um, Abu Mazen wants peace. And if I'm right-wing, I think Abu Mazen doesn't want like, like, really? So part of what happened here is that we didn't even get to, there wasn't even room for a serious conversation about maybe the deal needs to be made better, but by pushing American Jews, by standing in Congress and critiquing the president of the United States, we didn't give space to the complex identity of American Jews, just like Israel has a Jews in Israel have a complex identity. American Jews are Jews and Americans. Israeli Jews are Jews and Israelis. And each one of these demands different, different things from us. And part of what we did is we flattened the debate. To be an American Jew is to, is to, is to balance, just like every other group, is to balance multiple loyalties, multiple Daniel, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. Daniel, <laughs> Netanyahu is your prime minister. My prime minister, right or wrong, I have to stand by him if he's being attacked by American Jews. No, attack Netanyahu, and uh, I'll, I'll actually support you on that. But when you go to Congress, it almost became a loyalty moment. Where do you stand? You cannot stand when a foreign leader comes and stands in your Congress. You just can't do that. What I would suggest is that, again, you could critique policies, but you almost were demanding of American Jews to reject not a policy, but a partisanship, a partisan stand which it's just, you can't do anymore. And so okay. I'm arguing that if we want this to be helpful as we go forward, we have to make sure that as we move forward, the issue of Iran is not an issue of loyalty test, but let it be a serious debate about the issues at hand. So I think that that is a, a very necessary guideline uh, for, for the Israeli side. I would ask American Jews to do something here as well, uh, American Jewish supporters of renewing the deal. And that is, don't do what you did in 2015. 
don't turn this into purely a policy debate and my team against your team. I need to know we're on the same team. I need to hear genuine anxiety from supporters of the deal. I need to hear some doubt. Are you really 100% sure? Now I'm going to use your argument, Daniel. Good. Are you, are you American Jewish supporters of the deal? Are you 100% sure that this is really the way forward? Can you really look me in the eye as an Israeli and tell me I have nothing to worry about? With this but Yossi, could you? I think that's great, but could you accept that in a conversation and a relationship, a person is uh, is able to express doubt when they're talking to someone who accepts that for themselves too? So if you, when both sides yes. could accept a little doubt, that's there's right. room. But when you come with certainty, I can't express. You're you're not giving me any room. So maybe if there is a little doubt on both sides, maybe there'll be more room to express the mutual anxiety and complexity that this conversation needs. You, yes. you, did, you did say I was going to have the last word, Lydia. Got it, you go, go for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, I said, I, did, I didn't mean it. <laughs> on the, I know, but on the Iranian issue, I insist. You now, got it, go for it. I love, I love you and I accept it, go. <laughs> what, what, what my takeaway is from this, for me at least, a really useful conversation is um, a little bit of humility on, the, on both sides uh, and a little bit of firgun, you know, the Yiddish word that we've adopted into Hebrew, a little bit of generosity, a little bit of giving the other side the benefit of the doubt, uh, that can go a long way this time around. Now, here, I'm going to say one more thing, but it's still- You can't, you can't, you I, just gave me the last word. No, but here, I'm, I'm just supporting you. And that is that, but that to do what you're just saying, Yossi, we have to start talking now. We actually should have been talking already. And once the deal is closed, then it's, there's too much rush to have to express the doubt and to have the conversation. I'm reaffirming it, but saying we have to start. We have to talk about this. We're not even talking about it. And then it's going to descend on us. Let's take a short break. And when we return, Ilana Steinhain will join us. In a media landscape flooded with hot takes, we need an island of well-written, long-form essays. A place where deep thinkers articulate their ideas and others respond and challenge those ideas with passion and respect. The Shalom Hartman Institute is proud to announce a new quarterly journal of Jewish ideas called Sources. Significant ideas, beautifully expressed. Crafted for Jewish thinkers like you. The inaugural issue features essays on the future of Jewish pluralism, whether Jewish continuity is fundamentally sexist, and a theologian's take on life during a pandemic. You can order a print subscription or read these essays online right now at sourcesjournal.org. Ilana, it's a pleasure to be with you. How are you today? I'm doing pretty well. I, I kind of want to hear what the therapists listening to our podcast think of that first segment. <laughs> right. One thing is certain, Yossi and I, we're not divorcing. We're, still, we're with each other for now, uh, for better or for worse, as the Jewish tradition didn't say. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is, a, this is yeah. a real tough one. Um, yeah. And uh, is there anything that you feel could help us shape our, our, our thinking on this? I want to start with two things. One is what you pointed out, Daniel, about Netanyahu coming to speak in Congress. That's not what's happening this time. 
And I think it's interesting to see that that's not what's happening this time. So already a different, um, a different tone has been set. You have members of the defense apparatus who are coming to talk with Biden and with other officials to say, you're our political allies, we're gonna discuss this. We're not gonna be exhibitionists. And I think that sets a different model and a different tone. And it may, that kind of tone may be the right tone to set between American Jews and, um, and Israeli Jews. That's one thing. But the second thing is I, I wanna step off of the point of generosity that Yassi made, because I think an attitude of generosity is very, very difficult to come by when you're in a mindset of scarcity. You're right that we shouldn't be having this conversation only in moments like this, because we're talking about building a muscle and that muscle can only be built in times of abundance. And then you can weather and, and use that muscle in moments of scarcity and threat like this. And so I wanna think about actually the way that my own teaching on this has changed since 2015. Because there's um, a text that was really my go-to in 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, like that whole period of the Iran deal and then the Kotel uh, deliberations falling apart at the last minute, where there was just like a sense of betrayal all over the place. And I'm not comparing for either side how they feel about each of these and which is more important. I'm not doing that. But it was just, it was in the air. And back then, this was the text that I taught, a verse from Isaiah, from Yeshayahu. It's a beautiful, beautiful verse about God's relationship with the Jewish people. And the verse goes as follows. It's Isaiah 49, verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she would not have compassion on the child of her womb? Even if a woman would forget, God says, I will not forget you. And the rabbis do something gorgeous with this because you know how it is when the rabbis see in one verse, the word forget three times, they say, this is our moment. We have something beautiful that we're gonna do with this. And so in the Babylonian Talmud, in Tractate Brachot, in 32b, they use each clause of this verse to talk about when you're in relationship, what do you have to remember in order to stay in relationship? And what do you have to be willing to forget in order to stay in relationship? And it goes like this. Can a woman forget her nursing child? And the Hebrew is ula. The rabbis say the following about that. God said, would I ever forget the ram offerings, the olot, or the firstborn animals that you offered before me in the wilderness? I can never forget your infancy, Israelites. I'll never forget your infancy. So Israel said before God, but master of the universe, if you don't forget things, then maybe you won't forget the sin of the golden calf. Maybe we don't want you to remember everything. We want you to forget some stuff. God responded, don't worry, I'll forget these two. So Israel said before God, well, master of the universe, if you do forget, maybe you'll forget the revelation at Sinai. And God responded, no, I won't forget these things. And that was the text that I went to. Why was that the text that I went to? Because it was in a moment where we basically said, look, there are gonna be betrayal moments. There are gonna be moments where you feel like this is an eagle has a half. This is a golden calf. Who are you worshiping? Whose side are you on? 
And yet, even with those moments, you actually might have to choose to get past them. You might have to choose to not just get past them, but in place of them, try to remember the covenantal moments and try to build more covenantal moments. That was my party line back then. Fast forward five, six years. And you know what? These are not moments. These are orientations. The general orientation of American Jewry and the general orientation of Israeli Jewry, they're just different. Our identities are different. This is not a golden calf moment. And it, it's not moments. It's, it's who we are. It's like I always say, a feature, not a bug. And so I'm searching for new language, a new way to think about this. And to Yossi's point about generosity, I'm searching for a new way to think about this. And I'm looking at a new paradigm. And the paradigm that I'm looking at now is, it's a Rosh Hashanah paradigm. It's a situation in which God and the Jewish people wrap every year, knowing that the people are gonna do the same things again, that they did last time, that people are gonna have theological issues with what goes on in the world the same way they did last year. And yet each year they come together again and say, we want to be in this relationship. It's an ongoing recognition of imperfection and the desire for a relationship overcoming imperfection. Not because we always say, well, you know, it's so great we have this argument. It is so great that bad things happen to good people. That really makes me think. Or it's so great that you keep doing those terrible things, human beings, because that makes me think as God. That's not what it is. It's essentially saying, I think what you're doing is wrong. I'm upset at you. And yet we think the relationship is worth carrying on. And how do you do it? So this is the Gemara in Rosh Hashanah, Talmud in Rosh Hashanah, 17a. The house of Hillel say, when you look in the famous 13 attributes of God that we talk about on the high holidays, one of those attributes is God is Rav Chesed. God is abundant in kindness. Here comes the house of Hillel on that verse. Bid Hillel say, God who is abundant in kindness. What does this mean? God tilts the scales in favor of kindness. Mate clape chesed. Imagine the scales. We know what the scales are when you look at them straight on. God chooses to tilt the scales in favor of relationship because God recognizes who we are. And I would argue that by coming to the high holidays, we choose to tilt the scales in certain directions because we know who God is. So of course the Talmud does not suffice with this. How does this happen? Asks the Talmud. What does that mean? God tilts the scales. Rabbi Eliezer says, well, simple. God kovsho. The Hebrew is kovsho. You could read it one of two ways. One is God literally presses down on one side. Or you could say God hides the bad stuff. But either way, there's something purposely dishonest going on here. God pushes down on the side of the merits, tipping the scale in their favor. As it is stated in Micha, in Micah chapter seven, verse 19, God will again have compassion on us. God will push down our iniquities. 
No, it's not push down in the original verse. It's basically cover up, right? Kind of cover up the bad stuff. But Rabbi Yossi, son of Hanina, says, no, it's not that God's going to cover up the bad stuff. It's not that God is going to focus and push down on the good side. But it's God is going to be no set. God is going to carry it. God's going to carry the stuff that God doesn't like so that it doesn't weigh down the scale. As it says, God bears, God is no set sin and forgives transgression. And I am very taken by this term of being no set, being willing to carry. What does it look like to really recognize the other side and say, what I think you're doing is actually wrong. It's, I think you're doing is actually wrong. There are times when American Jews, I think the Trump example was a great example. I think what you're doing is wrong. And majority of Israelis to American liberals, I think what you're doing is wrong in Iran. What does it mean to say, I am willing to be no say that? I can carry that because I recognize who you are, you recognize who I, I am or we are, and we want to be in relationship, that not everything is zero sum. And to me, this preserves the ability to feel maybe not betrayed, but to feel that there's something off here, to deeply, deeply disagree and be upset and think that the other person is doing something wrong, and also to recognize that this is what we carry in our relationship. It's, it doesn't end the relationship, and it's not periodic. It's a permanent part of this conversation. So that's where I am right now. Ilana, beautiful. I think part of the challenge in 21, as distinct from 15, is that I'm not sure we want to carry it anymore. And I'm not sure we're not looking for verification about the flaws of the other. I, I love the imagery of we're coming together on, we're coming back. That we're together is self-evident. I want to be with you on Rosh Hashanah. God and the Jewish people are both going to say, you know what, I know the stuff that you've all done. And we've, you know, it's the same human mediocrity all over again. I know you're the, it's the human being is imperfect. And each one of us comes and God underachieves for us. Over, we're both re-engaging. I think part of the generosity of spirit is that you have to make that leap of loyalty. And now, very often, we're using them as examples, just more examples of the other one's failure. And, and I'm very worried that this next Iranian deal debate will be further verification for Israelis about, oh, I told you, North American Jews, they're not trustworthy, they're assimilating. It's that, that, that whole narrative. We're looking for evidence and vice versa. You know, those Israelis, they think that since they have a hammer for every, that every problem is a nail and that military power is the only way to solve the conflicts in the world. And there's a hearing that needs to take place for this to happen and, and a conversation that needs to happen. And just like we get together on Rosh Hashanah and you, we talk, we should be talking now. And instead, after the fact, we're gonna say, ah, you see, these are my facts. I, I could prove that you're yeah. wrong. Look, I, I'll say three things about this, or actually two. The first is, you know, if we thought we were Jews by choice in America, we are now a people by choice. 
right? You have these two vibrant centers and people have to choose to wanna be in the Jewish people. They have to choose to wanna have this relationship. So as educators, as thinkers, as devoted members of this people ourselves, we need to make the case for why this is important. And the second is a, is a text that you were talking to me about that I think is magnificent is, you know, Maimonides for all his negativity about Karaites, he's got this one line where he says in a responsum, I think it's 449, where he says, you know, there are God-fearing people among those people, right? Like maybe it's looking at what we have in common, but I think where this conversation gets us is the paradigm shift is we're not gonna agree. We need to actually make the case for why we should be in relationship. relationship. That's our job. Maybe sometimes it's not making the case, but it's acting that we're in relationship and then it becomes self-fulfilling. In the end, we're going to have to live with each other as a people, whether the argument is over settlements or annexation or the Iran deal or Trump. And we need to develop a different culture of conversation. And we have the resources. Ilana was giving us the, the tools. We, 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 we have thousands of years of experience of how to conduct our conversations differently. And uh, I certainly feel the need for myself at this particular moment on this particular conversation to draw on those resources. And I hope that we can do this. I hope we can navigate this moment uh, better as a community. For Heaven's Sake is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced by David Svi Kelman and edited by Tali Cohen. And music is provided by SoCal. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We want to know what you think about the show. You can write to us at for heaven's sake at shalomhartman.org. Subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, and everywhere else podcasts are available. Pleasure being with you. Thank you.